Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. These pounds, no. Morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to another episode of Sheologians. We are here today to put the she in Sherlock Holmes. Oh. Because I'll tell you why in a minute. <gasps> Joy, what? I'm so excited. Oh, okay. I was like, oh no, you know what I'm about to tell you. Mm-mm. Okay. Joy, I just want you to know that if you suddenly disappeared, I would not blow anything up with dynamite <laughs> or cut any animals or open cut any animals open <laughs> and i for sure would not let your disappearance go unsolved because i would just turn straight sherlock up in here no dynamite good i'm pretty sure that's what happened to bobby dunbar <laughs> right i know i know isn't that like yeah I that just, was just a really bad idea i just feel like that was not if you wanted to find his body like blowing things up if you wanted to that find him, that doesn't help you find anything. Help. Anyway, I'm trying not to judge, you know, people, people in the 1912s. From, yeah, but I just anyway, anyway, that's yeah. You're welcome. And a lot of stuff was done differently a back lot then. Of just very differently. They didn't make enough lifeboats for the Olympic, and just things they, were terrible. You went. You specifically went to vacation spots where there spots. were alligators, and you rode your wagon there. Yeah, and. Oh, Patrick Swayze Lake. Anyway, <laughs> hey, um, you probably you don't have a compliment. Oh, wait a minute! I didn't tell them where they could find all that information and stuff. Anyway, oh, I don't care. I'll put it in the. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new episode. Why am I talking about the last episode? It's because we just recorded it a few minutes ago, right. and we're still freshly thinking of and what I just talked about. We are still talking to give you content also okay but wait you're right i am joy, you're joy. <laughs> and I'm we're, here gonna, with my... <laughs> we're gonna get through this everything's fine i'm here with my beautiful co-host summer and summer i'm so sorry i don't have a compliment for it's you okay. today you have no notes you for got this a episode. freebie yes last week for the same thing and i thought yeah that is really good logic behind that right and i'm just gonna embrace it yeah embrace the logic it's fine you compliment me all the time with your presence <laughs> Okay, it is my turn. This is, um, I'm going to tell you the unsolved mystery of what happened to the world's foremost scholar of Sherlock Holmes. And his name is Richard Lancelin Green. Okay. Yes. You know what's really funny? Mm. Is it green uh, with an E at the end? No. Oh, dang it. Why? I was going to say, because um, I have a friend named Angie, who actually right. you're going to meet, yeah. because she is a bridesmaid. Yes. And uh, her maiden name's Dunbar, and her married name's Green. <laughs> that is yeah. crazy, actually. And I'm getting married on her birthday. <laughs> okay. This is weird. This is. I was, like, thinking about her the whole time I was researching mine, because I just right. kept seeing Dunbar, Dunbar, Dunbar. Dunbar. Right. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Well, now I'm going to tell you about Richard Green. Mysterious? So mysterious. <laughs> like the weird sounds happening <laughs> in the studio we're alone in. Okay. Richard Lanson Green was born on July 10th of 1953. Okay. He was the youngest of three. 
And his dad, Roger, was a best-selling children's author. Who? This is really interesting. Oh, let me back up. Here's another mysterious thing that I love. Okay. Um, the first time I ever read about Richard Green, I was reading an article in The New Yorker. And that's where I got most of my information. Okay. And it's by this guy named David Gran. And the last story I told um, about the guy whose kids, you know, they, mm-hmm. they died in the fire and he ended up getting put to death for it. Yeah. Um, David Gran also wrote his story in The New Yorker. Oh. So when I noticed the name, I was like, David Gran, you are on fire and thank you for... <laughs> Being was like, that a pun? Oh a no! Pun? Oh no! No, um, that's not what I meant, David Grant. But apparently, you guys would be friends because yeah. the same kinds of things interest you. Yes, he's just like a really great writer, and he um, he is a great investigative journalist, and he does a lot of really good work. And I have one of his books. I feel like with all the podcasts and everything that that are happening now. I feel like investigative journalists are really like they're getting their day. Yeah. Yes. Right now. Yes. Like people and are. If David Gran had a podcast, it would be amazing. This is like Watergate stuff. Like I don't think like being a journalist would be like I'm sure there was like an influx uh-huh. and like wanting to be like the d- journalist that like cracks it all. Yes. And now we have that again. Right, right now. With podcasts. Yeah. Right. Up and vanished. Mm-hmm. Season one best podcast ever anyway um so i got most of almost all of this information from what david grand wrote about it um in the new yorker and also david grand's amazing so if you see him in a byline just read it because it's going to be good basically is what i'm saying okay and if you see him in person give him a high five yeah tell him hey <laughs> do, the, do the weird finger point do the finger. you, <laughs> you. <Good job>. <laughs> okay <clears throat> anyway Richard Green, youngest of three, his dad, Roger Green, this is interesting, was a best-selling children's author who popularized the Homeric myths and the legend of King Arthur and was a good friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Cool. Yeah. So Richard grew up near Liverpool on land that had been given to his ancestors. Listen to this. In 1093. The year 1093. So, like, they had been on this land Forever. Like, his family had been here since 1093. Wow. Right. Um, And uh, the guy that wrote, Nathaniel Hawthorne, okay. like, visited and actually wrote about this place. Because apparently, Richard Green's dad, Roger, was, like, friends with all the amazing writers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's just how it, it was. It seems that's... to be the pattern. Right. So, is it any wonder that by the time Richard was 12, he was obsessed with Sherlock Holmes? this was a literary family right clearly he was so obsessed with sherlock holmes that he essentially rummaged for random items and hauled them up to the attic of his parents estate and recreated the sherlock holmes apartment at 221b baker street Wow! so he had like a rack of pipes a persian slipper stuffed with tobacco a stack of unpaid bills which he stabbed into the mantle with a knife, just like Sherlock does. That's in so the, cool. I know. Um, he had a box of pills he labeled poison, <laughs> empty ammunition cartridges, um, a preserved snake, a brass microscope. Um, so basically he didn't have the internet. So right. he did really amazing things yes. this time. <laughs> and outside the door of the attic, he hung the sign, a sign that said Baker Street. So he was serious. 
That's cool. And he like recreated it. He recreated it so well that other Holmes fans from all over parts <gasps> of England came to see it. One reporter who came to see it described going to the attic as having the feeling that climbing those 17 stairs to the attic, which was the same number specified in the stories, by the way. Um, oh, and he would he would have a tape recording playing in the background that had like sounds of Victorian London, like cab wheels and horse hooves. He was in. He was like in it. In it. And like the reporter was like, when you walk up those stairs, you think you are walking to Sherlock Holmes' apartment. <gasps> um. So, because he did such a great job at this, he essentially became, not essentially, he did. He became the youngest person ever inducted into the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, where members sometimes dressed in period costumes and got together and just did all things Sherlock. Right. Of course. Right. <clears throat> so. Why aren't we doing that right now? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> um, so... After Green graduated from Oxford in 1975, he began to study the, he had up until this point, like his entire life, from the time he was 12 until he graduated from Oxford, um, he was, he knew the quote, sacred writings up and down. And Sherlockians, that's what they call themselves, mm -hmm. uh, call the, all of Hol the Holmes novels and 56 short stories, the sacred writings. So after he graduated from Oxford, he began to kind of focus more on serious scholarship. Okay. Um, and I mean, but serious scholarship in like the Holmes world. Like that was what okay. he cared about. Um, and of all of the mysteries around what. I mean, I guess it would have been weird if he was like, I'm going to be a marine biologist. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, no, no. At this point. He had one. He had a singular focus. I, I Let's keep it. That's what I mean when I say that. Um, of all the mysteries around the sacred writings, which I don't, I feel weird calling them that. So I'm not going to call them that. But of all of the mysteries around the writings, the greatest one, according to Green, was around Arthur Conan Doyle himself. And that was Arthur Conan Doyle was the guy that wrote Sherlock. Mm -hmm. So Green decided he was going to compile the first comprehensive bibliography and hunt down everything Conan Doyle had ever written, including pamphlets, poems, obituaries, anything unpublished, grocery lists, grocery lists wow. letters to the editor. So he would carry a, a plastic bag instead of a briefcase and he would go unearth documents that had long been forgotten. Like he, he was like hunting for this stuff Wow, is how people described it. So essentially he started to retrace like every step he knew of in Conan Doyle's life. And his friends would like describe it as if he was like assessing a crime scene. Like that's how meticulous and like serious wow. he was in the early eighties. He published the first series, the first in a series of introductions uh, of the Penguin Classics edition, which if you go to Barnes Noble, yeah. you know, they always have that shelf of the Penguin Classics. Green published the first of a series of introductions of Conan Doyle's previously uncollected works, many of which he had, he had found himself. These essays, which were written in a clinical style, started to get him attention outside of the Sherlockian like subculture. Like right. he was doing such a good job on this work. He even was breaking if you, out. Yeah. 
um, one essay, which was an essay longer than 100 pages long, was a small biography of Conan Doyle. And in another, um, he like did a, he broke down the case of the man who was wanted, which was, had been, he had found in a chest more than a decade after Conan Doyle's death and was claimed by Doyle's widow and sons to be the last unpublished home story. Like Green found it. Wow. Um, some experts wondered if the story was a fake and even Doyle's two sons trying to pay for their lifestyle, um, had forged it, but green ended up being able to conclusively show that the story was neither by Conan Doyle nor a forgery. It was actually written by an architect named Arthur Whitaker who had sent it to Conan Doyle in hopes of collaborating with him. Okay. Scholars described green's essays as dazzling, unparalleled, and the ultimate compliment, Holmesian. Oh. <laughs> so, for two decades, he had been looking for a specific trove of letters, diary entries, manuscripts written by Arthur Conan Doyle himself. The archive was estimated to be worth nearly $4 million and was said by some to carry a deadly curse like the one in the most famous home story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Wow. These papers, worth over $4 million, I will remind you, had disappeared after Conan Doyle died in 1930, and without them, no one had been able to write, like, the definitive biography that Green wanted to write. And a lot of people were afraid that the archive had been thrown away or destroyed. The London Times noted um, that its whereabouts had become a mystery as tantalizing as any to unfold at 221B Baker Street. So not long after Green started looking into locating this archive, he discovered that one of Conan Doyle's five children, Adrian, had, with the other heirs of Doyle's things, Mm -hmm. stashed the papers in a locked room of a chateau in Switzerland. Oh, of course. uh, That's where I keep my papers. All of my papers are in a chateau. (laughs) Um, Green then learned that Adrian had spirited some of the papers out of the chateau. Without his, oh. he just whisked them away <laughs> out of the chateau. That seems like a nice way of saying stealing. Stole, yeah. <laughs> he stole the papers without his siblings' knowledge, hoping to sell them to collectors. Because, again, may I remind you, $4 million. $4 million. Dollars. <laughs> and as, well, and at the time, <laughs> oh, $4 million. But yeah, I can't imagine. How much that'd be now. Now, yeah. Yeah. Um, as he was attempting to spirit these away, he died of a heart attack, which helped further the legend of like the curse, like surrounding the archive. After Adrian's untimely demise, the papers apparently vanished. And whenever Green tried to like find out more, keep probing and looking around, he essentially would get, it was like a web of heirs to the archive. Like they would stop him. Um, one of the supposed heirs even who was like, who might have the archive was like this Russian princess. And it was just all very interesting and weird. And there's chateaus and princesses and things like that. So for years, Green continued to look through the evidence and interview relatives until one day the trail led him home to London and to the doorstep of Jean Conan Doyle, the youngest of the author's children. She was always described as tall and elegant, imposing, and even imposing in her late 60s. 
Um, Arthur Conan Doyle <laughs> wrote about her, something very strong and forceful seems to be at the back of that wee body. Her will is tremendous. <laughs> I like that. Anyway, um, whereas her brother, Adrian, had been kicked out of the Navy for insubordination and her other brother, Dennis, was like kind of just a jerk who sat out the Second World War in America. She had become an officer in the Royal Air Force and was honored in 1963 as a dame commander of the Order of the British Empire. So her dad was right about her. Yeah. So she was killing it. She, yeah. So Green struck up a friendship with her to the point where she eventually like just invited him over to her apartment one day and was like, hey, I have the archive. <gasps> no. She even opened a box and let him look at it. This whole time she had it. What? Right. She told him that when she oh, died. I want to have a secret like that. I know. <laughs> I know. It's not in a chateau. Everyone's like talking about it at a party and you're just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I wonder where those oh, are. Adrian really tried to spirit that away. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> she told him that when she died, she would be bequeathing the archive to the British Library, which excited Green because then he would finally have all the missing pieces that he had right. been looking for because the point for him was never about money. Like once oh, yeah. it was in the British archive, like it was going to be public, like he could see it. Yeah. And so that would be like the thing that would make him be able to fulfill his like Collection. life's purpose yeah. at yeah. this point. Um, he would be the guy that would write the, bi- the biography. So not long after that, um, she died and Green was like, yes. I I mean, not like, yes, she died, but like, yes, right. like now I'm going to have, I'm going to have access. Right. Well, one day, one Sunday, Green opened the London Sunday Times and was shocked to read that the lost archive had, quote, turned up at Christie's auction house and was to be sold in May for millions of dollars <gasps> by three of Conan Doyle's distant relatives instead of going to the British Library Everything in there would be scattered among private collectors around the world who might keep them, you know, inaccessible to scholars. Green was those I know little what happened? What happened? Ugh. How did this happen? Green was like, the, no, this is a mistake. Like, yeah. I need to go tell them this is not what she, she wanted to happen. Me, yeah. This is what she said. They're was doing happen. this outside of yeah, these, what she these wanted. were stolen. Yeah. So he he went to Christie's to go see the materials. And when he got back, he told his friends that he was like positive that many of the papers that he had seen there, um, like they had been stolen. Like, yeah. this is not, this is not it. Um, and he was like, I have proof that these have been stolen and we're going to deal with this. So over the next couple of days, he approached members of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London one of hundreds of fan clubs devoted to the te- detective and a fan club that he had particularly once been a chairman of. And then he alerted, <laughs> he alerted the Sherlockians, including like American members of the quote Baker street irregulars, which was an invitation only group that was founded in 1934. He also contact, he also contacted like more prim and orthodox scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those scholars call themselves the Doyleans. <laughs> About oh. And he told them all about the sale and how this was theft and this was not what she wanted to happen. Um, he basically, so he told all these people what he knew about what was supposed to happen with the archive. Um, 
and he considered a damning piece of evidence that he had like he had a copy of Jean's will, which did state, quote, I give to the British Library all my late father's original papers, personal manuscripts, diaries, engagement books, and writings. So he was determined to block the auction and all he like rallied all of these people, um, amateur sleuths and scholars, um, and presented their case to the members of parliament. Wow. I know. <laughs> Toward the end of the month, as the as their campaign intensified and its objections appeared in the press, Green hinted to his sister, Priscilla West, that someone was threatening him. Later, he sent her a cryptic note containing three phone numbers and the message, please keep these numbers safe. He also called a reporter from the London Times, telling them that some, quote, something might happen to him. On the night of Friday, March 26th, he had dinner with a longtime friend named Lawrence Keene, who later said that Green had told him that an American was trying to bring him down. After the two men left the, ro- the restaurant, Green told Keene that they were being followed and pointed to a car behind them. Later that night, Priscilla West that's um, phoned her brother mm-hmm. and got his answering machine. She called repeatedly the next morning, and he still didn't pick up, so she was scared. She went to his house, knocked on the door, and no one answered. After several more attempts, she called the police, who came and broke open the entrance. Downstairs, the police found the body of Green lying on his bed, surrounded by Sherlock Holmes' books and posters, with a cord wrapped around his neck. He had been garroted. So, (laughs) I know. I know. So this guy, David Grant, that I was telling you about, mm-hmm. the investigative reporter, he went to talk to a friend of Green's named Gibson. Gibson was obviously also a Sherlock scholar because mm-hmm. that's who Green hung out with. Yeah. Um, Gibson said that he had attended the coroner's inquest and taken careful notes. And as he spoke, he picked up a magnifying glass beside him and peered through it at several crumpled pieces of paper. And this is him, like, telling the story. Mm-hmm. He said, I wrote, I write everything on scraps. The police had found only a few unusual things at the scene. There was the cord agra- around Green's neck, a black shoelace. There was a wooden spoon near his hand and several stuffed animals on the bed. And there was a partially empty bottle of gin. The police found no sign of forced entry and assumed that Green had committed suicide. But there was no note. And Sir Colin Barry, who was the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences, testified to the coroner that in his 30-year career, he had only seen one suicide by garroting. That's a really... Yeah. Just so you guys know what that is, if you don't, it's where you, like, take a stick or something Mm -hmm. and you use it to twist the cord so that, like, you can do it, like, more tightly than you could ever do with... Mm -hmm. It's basically a simple machine that allows you to... Tighten, tighten what something. you're trying to strangle, right. strangle and, a person with. And the coroner said self-garroting is extremely difficult to do. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> you're usually going to pass out before you die. Right. Um, and in this case, the cord around his neck was not like a thick rope, but a shoelace. Right. Which makes it even more unlikely that he was able to do it yeah. himself. Um, so... During one of the last conversations that Gibson and Green had, Green had said that he was afraid of something. And Gibson was like, no, 
you're fine. And Green was like, no, I'm not. And Gibson was like, do you fear for your life? And he said that Green said, yes, I do. Um, but Gibson didn't take the threat seriously, but he still told his friend, like, okay, well, don't answer your door unless you know who it is. Right. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> so on the night before Gibson had died, Green, or I'm sorry, Gib- the Green had died, <laughs> he had spoken to his friend Keen about an American who was trying to, quote, ruin him. Yeah. And then when Gibson called him the next day, he said that he heard a strange greeting on the answering machine. He said, instead of getting Richard's voice in this sort of Oxford accent, which had been on the machine for a decade, I got an American voice that said, sorry, not available. I said, what is going on? I thought I must have dialed the wrong number. So I dialed again really slowly. I got the American voice again. So that was just weird. Um, Gibson said that Green's sister had heard the same like American greeting, which is one reason that she had like rushed over to the house. Um, So that was just like, that was something that was weird. Um, the police had not conducted any forensic tests or looked for fingerprints. And the coroner, who had actually, like, in trying to help solve the case, had attended a meeting of the Sherlock Holmes Society to conduct a mock inquest of the murder from a Conan Doyle story in which a corpse is discovered in a locked room. Even after that, he was like, I still don't, I don't know. Um, the coroner noted there was not enough evidence to ascertain what had happened. And as a result, the official verdict regarding whether Green had killed himself or been murdered was left open. So enter a man named Owen Dudley Edwards, who was a highly regarded Conan Doyle scholar um, who believes that Green was without a doubt murdered because he knew and Dame Jean had let him handle the archive. So, like, this guy is, like, he touched the archive. He knew where it was. This is why he was murdered. Yeah. He claimed that Green was the biggest figure standing in the way of the Christie's auction since he had seen some of the papers and could testify that Dame Jean had intended to donate them to the British Library instead of sell them. Soon after the sale had been announced, uh, Edwards and Green had learned that Charles Foley, Sir Arthur's, great nephew and two of Foley's cousins were behind the sale but neither of them could understand how like distant relatives had legally obtained control of the archive um yeah Owen Dudley Edwards said all we were clear about was that there was a scam and that clearly someone was robbing stuff that should go to the British library yeah I mean I can only like I can only assume that she died Mm -hmm. they went over to her home and they grabbed took something whatever worth they wanted. Four million dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and Edwards is like, this is not a hyth- hypothesis. Like, we are sure that this happened. And he brought up the circumstantial details, like Green talking about someone threatening him and his the um, the American he was talking about. And beyond that, Green, you know, he had no known history of depression. Um, Edwards pointed out that Green, like, just the day before he died, had made plans with another friend for, like, a holiday in Italy the following week. Like, he was making plans. Well, and I'm sorry, also, he was so close to obtaining his life's work. Right. But then he had lost it because it was getting sold. But then he, like, he was trying to keep that from happening. Right. Like. Right. 
seems like of all the times to give up when he was actually making some headway with right. keeping this from auction. Right. It seems like a weird time. Also, generally, when someone says, hey, if anything happens to me, please, you should investigate it. <laughs> generally. That's a huge piece of circumstance. I'm, I'm willing to admit it's circumstantial, but right. it's pretty big. Yeah. A little fishy. <laughs> Um, Edwards was convinced that if Green had killed himself, he would have been a note. And because Green kept notes on literally everything. And he was like, how would a man who has kept notes his entire life not leave a suicide note? Um, how would a man of average strength strangle himself to death right. in a garret? Ed- Edwards <laughs> said he was garreted with a bootlace, yet he always wore slip on shoes. And Edwards found meaning in seemingly insignificant details, the kind that Holmes might note, particularly the, parsh- the partially empty bottle of gin by his bed. To Edwards, this was a clear sign of the presence of a stranger since Green was a wine connoisseur and he had drunk wine at dinner that evening and would never have followed wine with gin. I guess that's just not something you do. I guess. I don't know. That's what <laughs> the wine... that culture. That's what the wine scholars say. <laughs> Those are called oenophiles. Oenophiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever. I don't know how to pronounce it either, but. Yeah. So because David Grant had met with this guy, Edwards, he was able to track down the American whose name I have no clue about because Grant didn't publish it. He wouldn't publish it. So here's what we know about the American. He was a longtime member of the Baker Street Irregulars and had for many years helped to represent Conan Doyle's literary estate in America. It is his main job. Um, sorry. It was, it was, it is his main job. Like he, but he had other jobs. And so like being kind of a part of the Baker street irregulars is like something it was, it's a subculture. So like not a lot of people knew that he did it. Um, his, I'm sorry. It wasn't his main job. His, his main job was that he works for the Pentagon in a high-ranking post that deals with, quote, clandestine operations. Edwards said he was Donald, one of Donald Rumsfeld's pals. Anyway. Whoa. So after he received a PhD in international relations in 1970 and became an expert in the Cold War and nuclear doctrine, he was drawn into the Sherlockian games and their pursuit of immaculate logic. He said... I've always kept the world, the two worlds separate. I don't think a lot of people at the Pentagon would understand my fascination with a literary character. And he had met Green through the Sherlockian society. In the mid-1980s, he and Green had collab- actually like collaborated on projects. He said that Richard had gotten very close to Dame Jean and was getting all sorts of family photographs because he had represented himself to Jean as this admirer of her father. And then one time she saw something in print by Green and realized that kind of the way he had presented his love for Conan Doyle to her wasn't really how he talked about Conan Doyle to the rest of the world. And so that like soured their relationship. Hmm. The American insisted to David Green that he couldn't remember what Green had written that had upset her. But Edwards the scholar we were talking to earlier Mm -hmm. and others in like Holmesian circles said that the reason nobody could recall a specific offense was that 
he had never said anything inflammatory. Like the American story isn't true. According to R. Dixon Smith, who was a friend of Green's and a Conan Doyle book dealer, <laughs> that's a fun job title, <laughs> the American framed it that way to Jean. Like he played on her sensitivities toward her father to basically twist her relationship with Green. And like, because he wanted the archive. That's what they're saying. Like, Interesting. the American story didn't happen that way. He got in the middle of it. He made a mess of it. Edward said of the American, I think he did everything he possibly could to hurt Richard. He drove a wedge between Richard and, and Dame Jean. After Dame Jean pretty much ended her relationship with Green, Edwards and others noted that the American got closer to her. Um, and the American was like, nah, that's not how it happened. Anyway, by the mid-1980s, Green knew that he would not have access to the Conan Doyle archive until Jean died, presuming that she gave it to the British Library right. like he thought. So in the meantime, he just kept researching his biography and, like, waited for her to die, which is, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> he assumed that doing, like, making the definitive biography would take three volumes. The first would be... Doyle's childhood, the second, the arc of his literary career, the third, his descent into a kind of madness. And I think this is something that's really just weird and interesting. So towards the end of Conan Doyle's life, he kind of went crazy. Okay. Um, he began to believe in ghosts. He started attending seances. Okay. Um, like just weird pagan mm -hmm. weird things um and he like got really into it and he like claimed to see dead family members and also are you ready for it fairies oh so green had a hard time rationalizing how this could happen in one essay, he wrote, it is hard to understand how a man who had stood for sound common sense and healthy attitudes could sit in darkened rooms watching for ectoplasm. I have to agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, Green reacted at times as if his hero like had betrayed him. You know, mm -hmm. in one passage, he wrote Conan Doyle was deluding himself. But at the same time, while he was getting upset, finding about finding out about the end of Doyle's life, he decided that he also wanted to just hold things that Conan Doyle himself had held. Letter openers and pens and spectacles. I mean, it's interesting because like... Uh-huh. Yep. We're going there. <laughs> so, he would collect things. One of his brothers said he would collect all day and all night. And I mean all night. Green covered many of his walls with Conan Doyle's photographs. He even had a piece of wallpaper from, from one of Conan Doyle's homes. Obsession is by no means too strong a word to describe what Richard had, his friend Nicholas Utichin said. In, um, in an interview in 1999, Green said, it's self-perpetuating and I don't know how to stop. So he was obsessed. So when Dame Jean died and he found out that the archive he so badly wanted was going to private auction, he just, he went mad. 
He tried to piece together why the archive was about to slip into private hands. And according to Green's family, he typed notes on his computer, re-examining the trail of evidence, which he thought proved that the papers belonged to the British Library. He would work late into the night, and he would frequently go without sleep. At one point, he typed in bold letters, stick to the facts. Another sleepless night, he told his sister. And he told his sister that the world seemed Kafka-esque. Several, uh-huh. Several hours before Green died, he called his friend Utechin, which is a really weird name at home. Yeah. And Green had asked him to find a tape of an old BBC interview, which Green recalled quoted one of Conan Doyle's heirs, saying that the archive should be given to the British Library. Utechin said that he had found the tape, but there was no such statement on the recording. Like, that never happened. And Green oh. went off, accused of his friend of conspiring Whoa. against him, as if he were another Moriarty. Finally, Richard was like, dude, you've lost it. Um, so anyway, uh, David Grant went back to talk to uh, Gibson, a really close friend of, of Richard Green. And he basically said, like, the, the guy Gibson just, like, really wanted to prove that this could not have been a suicide right he was just trying to protect like the memory of his friend right and he was like you know if someone else had garroted him why would he need a spoon like a killer could use his hands but like at the same so like at the same time like in his arguments it's almost like he's arguing that maybe like richard did kill himself so Mm -hmm. like he doesn't he seems really like kind of not really sure so by the time he's done talking to david grand he's like looking through his notes and he's like, okay, you know what? Maybe he wanted it to look like a murder. Like Gibson started to believe. That was my thought that like, if someone like green was going to commit suicide, right. Wouldn't he do it in a way? Like it was a Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he didn't leave a note. Maybe he took his own voice off the answering machine Maybe that's why he sent his sister like a note with three phone numbers on it. Maybe that's why he was telling people of the American, mm-hmm. like the guy he was most angry at in the whole world. Yeah. Um, and his friend was like, maybe he had been planning it for days and like laying a foundation and giving false clues and, um, you know, stuff like that. So basically David Grand was like, maybe Green was so upset that he had lost the archive, that he might have tried to frame the American and all of these other things. So um, Green's sister, Priscilla West. I just still think it would be really hard to kill yourself that way. Right. Right. That is like a really big piece of the puzzle. It doesn't make any sense. Um, Green's sister, Priscilla West, said that her brother had willed his collection to a library in Portsmouth near where Conan Doyle wrote the first two home stories so that other scholars could have access to it. Listen to this. The collection was so large that it had taken two weeks and 12 truckloads to cart it all away. Whoa. It was estimated to be worth several million dollars. Far more money in all likelihood than the treasured archive itself. He really did not like... I know. He really did not like the idea of scholarship being put second to greed, Priscilla West said. He lived and died by this. She then told David Grant something Mm. about the archive, 
which had only recently come to light and to which her brother had never learned. Dame Jean Conan Doyle, while dying of cancer, had made a last-minute deed of apportionment. Splitting the archive between herself and the three heirs of her former sister-in-law, Anne Conan Doyle. What was being auctioned off, therefore, belonged to the three heirs and not to Dame Jean. And though some people still question the morality of the sale, the British Library reached the conclusion that it was legal. Green also never got to find out that after the auction on May 19th, the most important papers from the archive ended up at the British Library. Dame Jean had not allotted those documents to the other heirs and had willed many of them to the library. At the same time, the library purchased much of the remaining material at the auction. As Gibson later told our investigative reporter, the tragedy is that Richard could have still written his biography. He would have had everything he needed. Wow. David Gran asked Priscilla West what she thought had happened to her brother. At one point, Skerard, Lance Skerard, uh, the guy can never, this guy's <laughs> name is Skerard, who was Richard's brother. Also, Priscilla West's brother, another sibling, had told the London Observer that he thought murder was entirely possible, and for all my attempts to build a case that transcended doubt, there were still questions. Hadn't the police told the coroner that an intruder could have locked Green's apartment door while slipping out, thus giving the illusion that his victim had died alone? Wasn't it possible that Green had known the murderer and simply let him in? And how could someone, even in a fit of madness, garret himself with merely a shoelace and the help of a spoon? Priscilla West said, I don't think we'll ever know for sure what really happened. Unlike in detective stories, we have to live without answers. And that's the story of Richard Lanceling Green. Wow. I know. That's crazy. So one of... Because either way, it's just such a tragedy. Right. To his, I mean, in general, and to his life's work. Right. What a tragedy if he had... Right. Killed himself in this Mm -hmm. very Sherlockian way. Right. And um, if he had just waited, he would have had. He would have discovered that everything was fine, everything yeah. was on the up and up, and he would have had what he needed. Right. Um, and it's just interesting how like he kind of was descending into madness at the same time he was like really upset that Conan right. Doyle had kind of become mad too at the right. end of his life. Yeah. And well, and he accused him of like all this superstition, but he himself like embraced that weird superstition. Yes. Um. Yeah. And also the thing is too, it sort of removes a motive for him to be murdered. Like if everything was on the up and up in terms of what was going to the uh what was going where and to who. Right. right. It doesn't like if those if the archives had been stolen, mm-hmm. that's one then thing. Then you could see why mm-hmm. someone would try to do some damage control mm-hmm. to someone trying to blow But also he had m- more millions and millions of dollars in right. his own home. Yeah. Of material. Yeah. So it's just like, but none of it was stolen. Right. So it's weird. And I just, so one thing that was interesting, I just, the, the like obsession around Sherlock Holmes. Like I love Sherlock Holmes, but I am yeah. nowhere near, like not even on the same You're not plane. dressing up in period piece and <laughs> right. solving mysteries. Right. Something I thought that was interesting as I was reading about this was that several actors who have played Holmes have felt haunted by him. Like um, the most famous one is Basil Rothbone. Uh, he wrote a 
autobiography and he played Sherlock Holmes in more than a dozen films, complained that because of his portrayal of Holmes, his renown for other parts, including Oscar nominated ones, were sinking into oblivion. The public conflated him with his most famous character, which the studio and audit audience demanded he play again and again until by the end, he too, because Conan Doyle said this as well, lamented that he could not kill Mr. Holmes. Another actor, Jeremy Brett, had a breakdown while playing the detective and was eventually admitted to a psychiatric ward where he was he allegedly cried out, damn you, Holmes. Like, there's just Whoa. so many weird things, like, surrounding, you know, like... It's a mania. It's a mania. And so, like, that's one of the really, like, fascinating things around all this for me is, like, he's a mythical creature. Like, people will, in these groups, are known for talking about him like he's real. Right. And T.S. Eliot, this is a great quote, T.S. Eliot once observed... Perhaps the greatest of the Sherlock Holmes mystery is this, that when we talk of him, we inevitably fall into the fancy of existence. And Green, on one of his millions of scraps of paper, wrote, Sherlock Holmes is a real character who, who lives beyond lifespan and who is constantly rejuvenated. Oh, and mm. then, I mean, if you just think about, like, the time that he was written in, like, he was written at a time when... Like, science was really starting to do things for mm -hmm. humanity. Yeah. Like, illnesses were being wiped out. The there first... was a reason why that was being that way, being so logical and, like, mechanical almost. Was, was mythical lauded. suddenly. Yeah, it was yeah. like, whoa. It, right. That was when there was, like, a clear um, link from, like, intelligence and logic yes. was, like, really, really yes. being seen like industrialization yeah. and science. They were like changing people, like the way that they li they, they lived and like everything that they did and how they got their food and how they dealt with sickness and what kind of jobs they had. And, um, you know, he really entered the public consciousness like right at the same time as the first police forces were yeah. being created. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was kind of this like reason triumphing like over madness right thing that was going on in the culture and he like embodied that and so my 10 cents with Holmes is that like he represents like kind of a thing that we all want to be mm -hmm. like Holmes always gets redemption and answers right and like we all want that yeah we all want redemption we all want answers and Holmes always gets it so like I just think that's like the thing around him I don't, I don't know. Yeah. That's my... Well, and I think the interesting thing is that, like, I don't... Th there's an interest... Like, it comes with a cost, too, though. Yeah. With a him. huge cost. Yeah. So you can, you can watch and pretend you're that way. Like, you can, you can experience it without the cost. Right. Of being so... Right. Ingenious. He had no relationships yeah. and... Yeah. There's oh. a madness to him. Yeah. I didn't even know until I really, till I, like the first time I read about this story, like just how intense the societies are around him and like the obsession yeah. Yeah. with him and how much Conan Doyle at the end of his life, like he tried to kill Holmes and yeah. he couldn't mm -hmm. and he tried to write other things and he couldn't and it just like eclipsed him 
And it was almost like that's what happened when Richard Green became obsessed with him. Right. Is like he couldn't do anything else. Yeah. And then have all these actors who played him saying the same thing. And it all came like with this cost. Like, they embraced yeah. the character right. too much to right. the point that that madness like yes. is sunk in. Yes. Or maybe it's the curse. Ooh. Because so far, like, everyone who wasn't supposed to have those papers mm-hmm. that was trying to get at them, including Green, because mm-hmm. technically he was fighting against those papers going to mm-hmm. their rightful owners. Yep. Mm. I know. I know. And that <laughs> one so guy in the chateau. Yeah. I know. So who knows? I don't know. I don't have a, I think it's just, it's really sad and tragic. I don't have like a, oh, I think this is what happened. Right. I, I really I, no one knows. That's the thing. That's why it's an unsolved mystery. <laughs> Mis- can't do it again. <laughs> Lightning doesn't strike twice, you guys. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's it. That's my story. No one knows. I hope you guys feel so satisfied <laughs> with all these unsolved mysteries. I get this like weird like ugh feeling. Like I just want to know. Like at least yours had like kind of a happy yeah. ending. See, the thing is, is when I started, I had heard of it before, but I had not heard of all the the more recent stuff, the DNA testing mm-hmm. in my story happened in like 2008. And so I'd never mm-hmm. ever heard that's I hadn't part. heard the part where right where everything had been resolved. Right. But there it is. That's it. That's it for this week, guys. We're not doing another Unsolved Mystery next week, so don't be too disappointed in us. <laughs> and... Thank you guys for supporting us on Patreon. You can leave us a voicemail at 470-465-0475. And we will see you next week. Yeah.